Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's program, uh, let me first give a big salute to the Dope Fiend, who is coming up on five years of producing a new podcast on the same day of each and every week for the past five years. Had I been uh, that dedicated, then this would be my podcast number 277 instead of 249. It's an amazing job that the Dope Fiend has done, and uh, if you haven't done so yet, I highly recommend surfing over to dopefiend.co.uk and uh, checking out some of the great podcasts on his Cannabis Podcast Network. But most of all, if you're interested in the uh, world news and opinion about cannabis, then uh, his Dopecast is not to be missed. Even though I live in California, my uh, main source of up-to-date information about cannabis comes from the Dope Fiends podcast. So uh, even though it's a bit early, hey, congratulations, my friend. As the Bard McKenna often said, keep the old faith and stay high. Now, uh, some other friends at the salon that uh, I also want to thank today are some of our fellow saloners who sent in donations over the past two weeks to help offset the expenses associated with uh, producing these programs. And those wonderful people are our regular monthly donor, Mark C., and uh, Toby M., Wilbert V., Cryptic Music, Jordan S., and uh, Forrest R., who uh, also sent a note that uh, read... Thanks a bunch. Finally broke all the way through. Just got done listening to number 246. Sorry about your brother, but you still got plenty of others. Much love and hugs. Well, hey, thanks for that, uh, Forrest, and uh, it's a nice thought. And uh, also, uh, thank you to our other saloners who have written and posted notes about my brother. I uh, really appreciate your thoughts. And uh, there was also one more donor who was Alicia Danforth, and uh, she may be the only donor whose full name I've ever used. As you know, uh, there are still a few reasons that some people can't yet be identified in public as uh, supporting the reintroduction of our sacred medicines into society. But as you already know, uh, Alicia has been featured in several podcasts here, as, uh, as well as being on the psychedelic speaking circuit. So, uh, Alicia, hey, thanks ever so much for all you're doing for our community. And uh, also thanks again to uh, Mark, Toby, Wilbert, Cryptic Music, Forest R, and uh, to our other fellow saloners who have uh, purchased a copy of my Pay What You Can audiobook, The Genesis Generation, because uh, those donations are also funding the work here in the salon. And uh, I can tell you that uh, some of those saloners are also past donors. And uh, while I haven't met many of you in person, I feel like we're really old friends. Now, uh, since we already heard the first uh, hour or so of this uh, Terrence McKenna workshop in my last podcast, I uh, won't spend a lot of time on reintroducing it other than to once again say thank you to uh, Michael DeSercio, the uh, producer-director of the film Tryptozane, who uh, sent me the recording of what I think may have been a workshop at the Ojai Foundation in California sometime in 1986. And uh, while you'll hear the voices of several of the participants in the workshop, uh, the woman whose voice you'll hear the most from is uh, that of Kat Harrison, who was uh, Terrence's wife and is the mother of his children. 
And if you're fortunate enough to uh, be near any of the conferences where Kat is speaking, I urge you to go meet her. She is uh, not only a very charming person, but she's also one of the world's leading experts in uh, several areas involving our sacred medicines. And uh, so now, here is a continuation of a workshop with Terrence McKenna and Kat Harrison. I know how the wave all comes together and accelerates toward this transition point. I never call it the end, because then the beginning of a new series of many leveled waves is there, right? I mean, this is... That's right. I guess I believe in flux, and so the whole process is one wave. At that moment, we begin another process. Sometimes you you discuss that point as being the end of the universe, which you did a little while ago, and sometimes I feel like when you're as close when everything is accelerated like it seems to have recently and you're as close to a moment of transformation of some sort as we seem to be you see great strides forward being made and great slips backwards being made all at the same time right Um, it seems possible that the transformation will be not so fantastically physical as the end of the universe or um, turning inside out of the whatever this is but but actually just a sweep through you know, worldwide peace of mind. What if that occurred, you know? And that's large enough to uh, qualify, it seems to me, for the changeover in the wave. Yeah, I think it's very... The hardest thing to know is the nature of what this ultimate compression is. The scale. What it means. I mean, it like one way I imagine it, and that's why I love to quote Joyce about man becomes dirigible. I imagine it as the day when your mind becomes your home. You know, and all over the world, people just realize that now their mind is their home. But this, and you, you feel free to describe that as as the end of history or the end of the universe not the end of the universe the end of history because I think history is some kind of involvement with matter it's a wrestling with the angel of matter and the end of history is when you pin the angel of matter to the mat and then (laughs) you stand up and you say I am the Adamic human being made of light and you leave the realm of matter and return to some previously hidden dimension. Whitehead called these things epochs, these long periods of time, and he called transitions from one to the other a shift of epochs. Well, we've only been doing things like measuring the speed of light since 1910 or something like that. All the so-called constants of our physics are based on minuscule periods of actually monitoring these things to see if they are constants. And so I can imagine it as a, a shift in the laws of the universe that somehow cause consciousness to perceive itself more as it must truly be. And I'm always trying to to find physical models for these transcendental hallucinations. And the one which fits this is um, a few years ago, this 
Scandinavian astronomer Hans Alfven wrote a book called Worlds and Anti-Worlds. And in it, he talked about what's called a vacuum fluctuation. A vacuum fluctuation is where suddenly, out of nothingness, there emerge a stream of particles. And uh, they are equally particles and antiparticles. And they sail along for a period of time, and then they collide again, and each particle is destroyed by its antiparticle. And so what is called parity is conserved, meaning that when you add up all the charges, positive and negative, you get zero. So it's okay that this matter came from nothing and returned to nothing. This violates no laws as long as parity is conserved. But the interesting thing about this phenomenon, which is called a vacuum fluctuation, is that there seems in quantum mechanics no rule which would limit the size of such a phenomenon as this. So it's conceivable that our entire universe is an enormous vacuum fluctuation. And it's just, you know, 10 high 72 particles have emerged from nothingness and are hurtling through space and in another dimension, a parallel dimension, the anti-universe, which is the twin of this universe, is also hurtling through space. And at some point in future time, completely unpredictable from the state given within each universe, the two will collide and all uh, and parity will be conserved and all particles and antiparticles will disappear. However, the interesting thing is that uh, photons, which is what light is composed of, do not have antiparticles. They're this one weird exception. So that when the universe collided with its antimatter twin, what would be left would be a universe made only of photons. And those photons would be in the configuration they were in in the moment when the cosmic collapse of the state vector occurred. Well, we have no idea what the physics of a photonic universe would be about. A limiting case or a good first try would be that it would just be nothing and no life and no self-reflection and no mo But why posit that? There's such a persistence in, in the perennial philosophy of the notion that spiritual development is somehow related to light and to the cultivation of inner light and to the creation of light bodies and the stabilizing of light. So, uh, you know, it's possible to suggest that the, that the world of the imagination is simply the world of internal light, that it's a world where light is manipulated by thought in the way that in this world physical organism manipulates matter and so that you know you live in the radiant castles of the imagination after a shift of epochs in which the the photonic mode predominated that's just one way of imagining it it's one of the richest meditations there is to try to imagine the millennium, again, it's this thing, what would you have if you could have anything? I mean, sometimes I imagine it, you know, Hieronymus Bosch's great triptych, The Garden of Earthly Delights, where men and women of all races mingle among giant wrens and strawberries and feed each other pomegranates under 
an autumnal sun in an endless rolling park-like world of exotic vegetables and sexual excess and uh, <laughs> hard stuff to be. You can really take a readout on yourself by by seeing how would you like things to be. You know, I mean, I have. Sometimes I, my fantasy is I would like to be alone on a starship 10,000 light years from home with all the books in the universe and I would dress like Captain Ahab and I would stride around the catwalks inside this echoing starship and faithful robot slaves would bring me crumbling volumes of ancient lore which I would you know, say, no, this is a little too Vincent Price. How about... <laughs> I love, uh, if any of you are into science fiction, the science fiction of Cordwainer Smith is really wonderful. And one of his stories, uh, The Starship, is uh, George Washington's estate, Mount Vernon, in New York. And it's all exactly like Mount Vernon in Washington's time, except in the library of the big plantation house, there's one room from which the thing is controlled, and it's actually a starship in mid-flight. More questions about this time theory? Or yes, I have a question. Yes. <coughs> you mentioned here how the now is flooded with future perception. Yes. And I have just, it's really part of the Tibetan uh, practices, but it's always something which captures my imagination. It's just, how come it's now, now? And the the fact that these future perceptions are so tremendously tangible to us, especially while sitting in meditation or while uh, eating a meal even or something. And there's this, how come it's not yesterday and how come it's not tomorrow? And how come that I'm here now when I just have to flick my mind and I'm in yesterday and equally easy in tomorrow? I wonder if you have anything to say on that one. Well, I think that life proceeds through time. It's an effort by organism to map something one dimension larger than itself so it takes a whole life to do it a life is an effort to map a something you know and the now is the moving edge of the mapping process you cannot map it instantly or you would be it and so what to what being in time is is experiencing the incremental mapping of this higher order object and that's why hopefully a long life would give wisdom because a person would begin to get the whole picture hmm. you know so the now is kind of like the edge of the pencil as it moves yeah, over the ground really yes well what did plato say that the present is the moving image of eternity that that's pure good so platonism well, you can think of it as a, uh, you can think of the now as a kind of uh, laser which is moving over a larger surface and illuminating it, you know, scanning it. It's scanning something and it takes it a while to scan it and then at the end all the data is in place and you say, oh yes, I see now what the object of cognition was. And we, our faith is, and there's no reason to doubt it, that this is a great 
transcendent experience. This is the resolution, uh, the peace that passeth understanding as you sink into death. It's just that we like to think that the psychedelic experience gives us a preview. No one escapes, you know, the final realization. It's just that some people do postpone it to their last act. But there's no reason for that because it is the, the mystery, the culmination, it is the date palm and the wellspring. I'd like to, uh, I'm always interested in pursuing things from the Mayan angle, so I'd like to ask about how this theory of time relates to the individual. It's somewhat related to BJ's question. There's some sense I have that in their techniques, and certainly you've experienced, and other people have experienced this with the mushroom at, at uh, high doses of um, traveling through time and actually seeing the future or seeing the past. And I, I was wondering if you could say more about that and, and uh, some framework for understanding how that is possible. Yes, well, I think psilocybin seems to be the great teacher of history. And, wants, and, and part of its teaching is history. It views a person without a history as a person with amnesia, you know, a person with a diminished capacity, because your history gives you the power of your convictions. Uh, the way I use the wave, or the way I've been using it recently, is to try and study the time immediately ahead of us so that we don't misjudge what's going on and to, you know, it's a mathematical process. There's no indeterminacy about it if we anchor the whole wave system on 2012. And what I see from that anchorage, anchorage point is uh, in the 67-year cycle from 1945 to 2012, we have reached that point which resonates with the larger 4,306-year cycle at that point, which corresponds to the collapse of the Roman Empire around 475 A.D. In other words, uh, we, are, we have been through a period of imperialist expansionism, which has lasted for a number of years, certainly since the beginning of the 80s. But I see a retrenchment of that and a, a, uh, a uh, recidivist tendency, a tendency toward religious fundamentalism, rigid social structures, and in short, the sorts of things which could be seen as valid resonance patterns uh, to the early medieval phase of European civilization. The period from uh, A.D. 474, let's for shorthand call it 500 A.D., the period from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., in other words, to the discovery of the New World by Columbus, that thousand-year period is the, is the resonance that we are going to experience from now to the late 90s. Around 1998, we will reach the beginning of the Renaissance and the discovery of the new world. But we are going to have to endure a period not entirely to our liking. We represent 
the pagan Hellenistic spirit which has held full sway within the empire for the past 25 years. And we may feel constricted now, but I think that our ideas and our position in society has further constriction to undergo before it reflowers uh, downstream a bit. So when I first realized that, I felt very pessimistic. Mm. But then I asked myself, well, what aspects of medieval life uh, could I groove? What aspects of, of that medieval eschatology were solitary to my needs and wishes? And I discovered that, you know, it was an age of great mystical faith and illumination. Oh. It was an age of... Uh, communities of like-minded people seeking transformation far from the turbulence of the collapse of the empire. So uh, I, I, th I am not of that... My theory leads me away from those people in the New Age who think we're about to be catapulted into the corridors of power. I think that's preposterous, and the evidence for it is zero. And uh, I think better we should tend our gardens and uh, form brotherhoods and sisterhoods of affinity and realize that the task of transformation is one of a lifetime, our lifetimes, you know? And every time someone like... Uh, Dick Price or Tony Lilly moves from the wheel, I always wonder, you know, how did it feel to know it wasn't finished? You know, to go with it undone. And, uh, oh yes, I have no doubt that when the saucer comes that Tony or Dick will be in control, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> what is it uh, Bob Dylan says in his song, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting in the captain's tower? Um, but yes, so, so I don't know if that answered your question, Robin, but I wanted to, to get it in because the real... Uh, the real meat for most people for this idea about time is not the mathematics of it that and the symmetry of it that's only pleasing to a certain mentality but really what does it tell us about the years immediately ahead and what it says is you know consolidation illumination community and uh, self-discipline I can only say thanks a thousand times that we don't have to go through it for a thousand years and only for like 15 years. This acceleration seems to me to be very, very convenient. <laughs> Imagine if we were born in, in 500 A.D. and we had to look forward to... That. Yes, well, that's why I say, you know, imagine the people who lived in times when the temporal river was stagnant or even when countercurrents swept it backwards. This is the anguish of the ancestors. This is the sacred trust that must not be betrayed. The pogroms and the invasions and the atrocities conducted across history can only be somehow redeemed if we, who are the living wavefront of this genetic experience, do not fumble the ball, you know? All our ancestors are watching to see how we will do. Oh. Kath. I would like to address Robin's question. 
as well, because it seemed like you were asking sort of on a more mechanical, how does this happen? Well, yeah, how can it be that yeah. that, uh, that the Mayans or we on psychedelics mm-hmm. can travel through time and, and see these things? My image for it that explains that phenomenon to me, and I've had the same experience, past and future, is, well, Terence is just referring to the temporal river, is that it's a river which flows two ways, from the past to the future, and from the future to the past, and if you put yourself out in the middle of it, let go of control, let go of fear, and maybe you want to choose your orientation, or maybe you don't. You can just find out where you flow, or you can sort of face the past, or face the future, and flow there. I mean, this is not a physicist's explanation of how this happens, but it seems to work that way, you know, and that we think perhaps far too much of the past creating the future, and that we should think more, and perhaps other people have, of how it's flowing the other way, and Mm -hmm. this is how some so-called primitive people have managed to conserve the very simple, effective beauty of their lifestyle is and that that real strong feeling that every moment is now because they're thinking of it simultaneously. Mm. I, I, I think of that and that, that also sets my mind off um, you know uh, that's kind of like the river's flowing both ways and if you kind of uh, take a, a step to the side somehow that you'll catch the, the current from the future that's appealing but also I mean I, I, I always play with these metaphors and maybe I'm literalizing them too much is it possible to step out of that stream in some way and then looking above and sort of choose where you're going to descend into it or another image that came to mind is um, are there somehow um, holes in the fabric of time that you can shoot through um, sort of like uh, in, in 2001 the Stargate opening up and um, there's this uh, hole in between and where you emerge is not the other side of it but someplace completely different if you take the wave seriously and apply it on these short scales of time you know you can find your way into yes unique configurations of the moment it's like astrology in that way you know and uh, often the content of a psychedelic experience can be later seen to be because of the situation of historical resonance that you weren't perhaps even aware of at the time or or if there are parallel worlds one or many which ones happen to be adjacent at that moment in the cosmic weather, kind of, you know. It's mm-hmm. sort of sometimes mm-hmm. I've taken the mushroom just to say, it, like a, a, a weather person, to say, okay, I just want to see what's happening out there right now, mm-hmm. not with a will in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can find that it's about knitting in your rocking chair, or you can find that you're just on some landscape that you couldn't have conceived of before. The essence of Tao is the correct apperception of process. That's what Taoism is, is to understand process is to be a Taoist. And I think that this is almost a formal rendering of the notion of Tao, almost an effort to create a a mathematics, an algebra of the Tao. And as long as it's true to the notions which Taoism conserves, which is of 
flow and determinacy within indeterminacy, uh, it, it serves. This is what understanding time is, is to understand process, but to understand it so well that it's like a sense for you. It's like seeing. This is the kind of seeing that is uh, very important, to see into time. It's what history and culture have experimented with, but it's what we now, by identifying that as what is going on, can accelerate uh, much faster. Anything else? Um, I was just picking up on the conversation with Michael this morning. Maybe you could uh, talk more about uh, the other. Oh, the other. Well, I'm not sure exactly what he meant by talking about the other. I mean, the other is just a way of thinking about all of these things that we name spirit, God, demon, void. It's that there just necessarily is a place off our map. Whenever you have a map, it implies the part that is not on the map. And the other, the truly other, is... Uh, it lies outside the domain of language. It's like the unspeakable. All you can do is point at it, you know. And uh, the Gnostic idea of God was that it was totally other, that there was nothing in this universe that gave any clue whatsoever as to the nature of God, that that was its essence, was to be completely other. But, you know, the other trickles through and reverberates in our lives in all kinds of dimensions. I mean, the first other that you meet is the world. And uh, at a later point in your development, your attachment to another human being can become a confrontation with the other. So it's just a way of shorthand signifying right? <laughs> the the dimension that carries you beyond yourself into the things that you previously couldn't uh, expect or imagine. Yeah, that's one notion of it. Or Wittgenstein's unspeakable. Or, uh, you know, I always, I'm fond of quoting this poem by Trumbull Stickney where he says, I lean over your meaning's edge and feel the dizziness of the things you have not said. That's the other. It's the dizziness of the things unsaid, the things that lie beyond the edge of meaning. Um, part of the question has to do with, um, specifically in, uh, in, in the mushroom experience at high doses, this sense of alien... Uh, intelligence or other because I think in you know it's like you said in some of our systems of uh, conceptions of God many psychedelic experiences uh, at least with LSD and, and other or light dosages is um, that I am connected to that or that's I'm part of I'm part of that thing and uh, but somehow on the tryptamines that it's uh, it's this alien intelligence I mean what what do you make of that if you feel that well, I don't know quite what to make of that. Uh, LSD is self-reflective and integrative, I think. Um, these tryptamines seem to be informational and largely unconcerned with the impact that the information they carry has on the perceiver. Um, 
I don't know. I think it just must have to do with the fact that the universe is not all smoothed out and filled in, and that this is really an area of personal exploration where you can uh, penetrate into an area, a terra incognito, a place where nobody knows exactly what is going on. We're not used to that experience. We expect to have maps of everything we look at and everywhere we go. But in this, and it is strange that in this one area we don't, that apparently our taboo against looking at the unconscious or delving into the mind has made us content to just fence off this area. Well then, if you climb over the fence and start wandering around out there, you don't know what you're going to find because the culture has carefully engineered itself to go around all of this stuff. Even, even I think, shamanism is largely concerned with gaining power to protect yourself from the onslaught of the other. You know, they're very concerned to hold stuff back. They don't really have this let's hurl ourselves into it attitude that we have. We, we found in the Amazon, we were looking for this one plant which had DMT in it. And the ayahuascaro that we were working with, I kept leading the questioning back to the matter of this one plant. And finally he said, first he said that it was uh, comida del perro, food for dogs, and which seemed like maybe a put-down of some sort. And so then he went back over it again and he said, you know, well, it's, it's mal and bizarro, it's too strange. So this was a man whose whole life was about taking ayahuasca and triggering hallucination. But he felt, you know, that to go into that plant, it was too weird. And you often have the feeling with those people that they involve themselves in the psychedelic effect like a dancer, almost as little as possible to get the job done, you know. They, they don't... Uh, I think that well, in that one case, he yes, certainly was. Uh, the line he did also seem to hold the mushroom in the sort of middle category, but he would use it on his own. He would only administer to others ayahuasca or certain things that he felt very familiar with. But then that was Saturday nights, Wednesday nights, he would do things on his own, you know, his work. Right. And uh, he would try out some of these other plants or combinations. But I think he was pretty intrepid, actually. He did have boundaries. In 83, or whenever it was that I was down there last, we were dealing with a different group of shamans on the upper Ampeyaku. And it was to get this orally active DMT thing that was made from tree resin. And we had pure chemical DMT uh, as a trade item, or we weren't sure why, but just in case we needed it. You never go anywhere without it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so talking to the shaman who could make the Varola paste stuff, we said this, and he said, oh, you have the, the, the essentia, you have the essence. He said, yes, and he said, so what is that like? He said, well, you don't take it orally, you don't take it by mouth, you smoke it. He said, oh, and what happens? 
And so he described a typical DMT trip to him and then said, would you like to try it? He said, no, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're not thrilled thrill crazy by any means. Uh, well, I'm, I'm reminded of in the, in the latest Castaneda books, he goes into uh, what he calls the, the old seers and the new seers. And the old seers were, maybe you're more aligned with them, I don't know, but they, they would be willing to explore any territory. And they made um, a division between the known and the unknown. No. No, it was the it was the new seers who came up with the third category of the unknowable. In other words, there's this reality, which is the known, and then there's the the other realities you go to, which are the unknown. It's like they're not necessary. It's like maybe the ayahuasquero takes you to the unknown. Uh huh. But this other realm, where it's where they don't go, they would probably call the unknowable because uh, the impact that it has on you to go in there is could be dangerous or from, or from the place of the unknown they could glimpse very briefly the unknowable mm -hmm. and it was usually a pretty shattering experience so but great em emphasis on being able to distinguish the difference between the unknown and the, the unknowable yeah so that whenever one made uh, an error in judgment it wasn't uh, that dangerous to be up against the unknowable but you had to recognize it as unknowable because whenever one didn't it invariably led to disaster of course that's Castaneda's you know, and that's his tip well that's interesting I mean it makes me think of uh, you know I mentioned Wittgenstein's unspeakable there is I think the unspeakable and the unspoken and all these uh, esoteric and initiatory religious uh, numbers are trading in the unspoken you know, you come to them and they will whisper in your ear the previously unspoken teaching. They will give you an oral empowerment. But beyond that lies the unspeakable, which no teacher can uh, orally impart or impart any other way because uh, it lies outside the bounds of uh, transmissibility by its nature. And I would, I, to some degree, I would think so. And that's the thing which then you validate. You can only val validate it uh, for itself, in itself, for itself. It is the private object of being. It is not something which I can tell you about or you can tell me about. It's the private mystery that is ontologically private because it's unspeakable. I don't think that what is the unspeakable is the same as the unknowable. I think that all of us who have pursued these dimensions have many experiences that it's very hard to talk about, or when you talk about them, you know it sounds so silly compared to what you experienced, right? It's one of the challenges of having this kind of group discussion or these kinds of workshops is to, to try to talk about that. But there is, I think, a big area that just doesn't language, don't you? Don't you think? The ineffable is how I think of it, another word for it. Well, you can sort of chip away at it. I mean, the whole progress of human development is maybe 
slowly eroding the unspeakable and turning it into the, the spoken. Somewhere in the middle of this whole process of the unknowable becoming the, no, the known, mm-hmm. and it ties back a little bit to your whole thing of time yesterday, where you said like the physicists are interested in the first second or parts thereof, and whereas you're interested in this final or coming up moments or years as things speed up. But what we're looking at is the physicists are looking at basically the 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 physics of it, the form, the, the, um, the whatever, the matter, the physics. And what you're looking at are the ideas which are coming into being more and more. This end of time is more and more recognition. So it's really like spirit or or mind or, or knowing, which is accelerating. So it's like the opposite end. One is the, the the matter coming into form at the beginning, and then at the end is, it's, is the knowing of all of this, which is coming to a point. And like an ant or whatever lower level of consciousness is you know, on different levels or say a cell an amoeba they have their thing and then there's the unknowable which is what we are acting in how can uh, even even inside of our body the blood cells can they know of our world of communications and symbols and knowledge such as we are on this unknowable is really just a greater universe a higher level which is known by by a higher way of being and it's so it's, it's like from each end whatever, the, the, the matter here and then the, the mind coming into it. And like this, this point coming up shortly, this 2012, is significant in, in that it's the, the possibly some, some sort of, like I say, this opposite end of knowing becoming complete, like life becoming completely aware of all life in of itself. But that's like, is that the end of everything? It seems like that's just a point, a, a, like a mid-swing of a pendulum. Yes, well then some other process having to do with the career of spirit instead of matter is initiated, you know. And whether, so. and whether, right. it's, whether it's the end of everything is, is rather a huge way of approaching it. I mean, it well, it's, it's, an, it's a complete end of one way of it, of, being. Of, of, of us as a, as a species, as a, as a life well, it's, it's, not just, it's not just humans, it's, it's all well, life. Of the Earth life entity then. Right. But if, if, if that life entity goes through a great metamorphosis, it's rather meaningless to say what happens to the rest of the universe since the rest of the universe right now is a concept it's, in our mind. Right, it, it, well that's the, the metaphysicality of it. To say what's never been said, to do what's never been done, to paint what's never been painted, to dance what's never been danced, this is... Uh, you know, somehow you're acting for everybody when you do that. It's an amazing thing to do something that's never been done. It means once you've done it, it's been done. <laughs> Pushing the limits out. Of that's the right. Novel, putting the fence, it's like a fence going out bigger and bigger, and like all these great minds that go out there and fence off a big area for all of humanity to run around in this area of being and knowing, and it's this whole process of... It, it's it's what aeronautical engineers call stretching the envelope. When you fly a fighter plane, you have the predicted engineering performance characteristics, but once you validate that it can do that, then it's up to the pilot to find out 
to stretch the envelope to find out what it can really do, how fast it can turn, how fast it can climb. And uh, that's what we as creative artists do for the human enterprise. And the lacking ingredient is courage, I think. I mean, I... Uh, for you, often I have the feeling that it's no longer, at least in my own life, about seeking the answer. It's about facing it. You know, it isn't about, you know, is it yoga, is it Taoism, is it this, is it that. Now, I think that now I know, at least for me, what it is, but the answer is so appalling. <laughs> and requires such courage to execute it and carry it through that I don't know what to do. I have no doubt that uh, we could all become the Taoist hermit on Cold Mountain, you know, and be that person of whom people in the valley say, Oh, him! We see him sometimes when it snows very deeply because he comes further down for wood. He uh, comes and goes in the mist and never talks to anybody. We could all become that person. Uh, there are no barriers to ultimate spiritual attainment. But what about you know your mortgage and your lover? and your devotion to French chocolate and uh, all of these things. Uh, I want my cake and eat. That's tricky. Well, that's... That's very, very tricky. Learn how to bake. Because it really all washes out. Maybe just for an hour of peaking, but it really puts all of that in perspective. But for instance, like the matter of the flying saucer, I, I have no doubt that if you took ten people selected from this group and trekked days east of Death Valley and, uh, you know, stayed up all night and then everybody took eight gr dried grams of mushrooms and uh, hooped and hollered and waited that something would happen that would be so appalling and so destructive to our preconceptions of what's possible in this universe that you just come out of it, you know, pointing into the <laughs> desert and saying, mm, mm, mm. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm careful. I don't. I don't doubt that appalling, appalling, appalling things <laughs> can happen, and uh, that reality can be completely pulled to pieces. And I don't know what that means. Uh, but I want to really try and deal with that on my terms, and that's a kind of fear. You know, it's a kind of holding back. That's why, you know, I know people who seem to me superhumanly reckless. I mean, they tell me the things they do and I just shake my head, you know, because, because uh, of, the, of the power, of the vistas, of the, the, the energies that they must have laid their hands on. Uh, I don't, it's too much for me. I want, I'm a simple scholar and uh, bookish collector type. Uh, I'm like Brother John here. <laughs> we like our home and hearth. Uh.
but that's the challenge, you see. That's the weird thing about the psychedelics. It is a path, but in a sense, it's the end of the path. And then what do you do? You know, now it's up to you. It's no more about, you know, the guru says in five years you'll make progress, or if you just keep eating this spirulina or fiddling with your crystals or something. It's that, no, you've arrived. Now, what do you do with it? Are you really want to be a wandering figure at the edge of civilization, glimpsed occasionally in your tattered cloak with your wild ravings. Well, that's and not the uh, only option. We were talking, Mitch and I were talking this morning about... Thank you. <laughs> it's tough to do that with kids, see, I know. Um, we were talking about uh, envisioning something and how these plants help you to to generate a vision of something real that you want to create or organize in the world. And then they help you to have the discipline and the dedication to carry them out in the real day-to-day, you know, telephone calls and how do I get the money for it kind of way. Mm. And that, I think, is, is a real strength that all of us have and that it's one of the responsibilities of being granted the visions is to make the visions then as real as you can. I mean, we do have our bodies here on Earth for some time to come. We do have pleasure, of course, which we should all indulge in, but we also have responsibility to make it as... Uh, as much like, even if it's a small step, as much like that fantastic thing we can see in our visions. Mm. And and I think that, you know, it gives you the object and then it helps you move toward it. And then we need to do that work and keep refreshing our vision if it gets weak or we start to give up on it or, mm. or oh. if we need to shift mm-hmm. direction slightly. I go back to astrology and Saturn being drawing a ring around the vision and then Saturn's stairway, envisioning the steps that it takes to get there. <coughs> and that how that you can't jump, you know, 40 steps up without losing part of the foundation. And that as an artist myself, I'm finally getting to a place of patience and realizing that the slower it goes, the better it gets. And the statement that I like is, if, if I only had more time, I'd use less words to write. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's, it's like choosing things carefully and allowing the process. And yeah. It's very... Oh. For years, I was just like, I've got to get this out. I've got to, you know, mm-hmm. but not anymore. Mm-hmm. It's now I'm really seeing that, that slow, patient steps um, create a foundation strong enough to someday, even if it's not in this lifetime, to manifest that dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you use the quality of your daily life as your currency mm-hmm. for how you're proceeding towards something, then you, you know if the quality of your daily life is good, deep, satisfying, and you have a goal you're probably on the right mm. path, right? If you're saying, God, it's just going to be hell for three years till I can get this <laughs> project together, you maybe should think about it <laughs> again, <process>. you know? <laughs> I see that process reflected on a greater scale in just the evolution of life itself, and that if life were to very quickly achieve the knowing, pure spirituality, mm. then what good is it? And that's like through humans and through all of our history and time. And so even this coming moment, 2012, that might just be like this reflection of another, even more ultimate. It most Certainly. likely is, yeah. and it's just a certain, it's just that reflection, and it's really this endlessly drawn-out, patient process, mm. which is taking its time as long as possible, so that every aspect will work into place, or whatever. So it's just, 
Well, this quality of daily life thing is an interesting point because I think it was yesterday or two days ago we meditated or thought about what would you do if you could do anything and how... uh... Oh, there it is. you imagine or if a genie were to suddenly tell you you had not three wishes but thousands and you would begin to dabble in fulfillment and then of course in the, the all the trivial and superficial things I mentioned palaces and Ferraris and all this but then things like that you could move anywhere instantly how would you choose to travel if you could move anywhere instantly and things like that. Well, at La Chirera, these possibilities were so real to us that we actually grappled with it sufficiently to see how it would develop. And how it develops is you discover that if you can do anything, the only values which have any meaning, if you can do anything and have anything, are aesthetic values. So that if you could travel anywhere instantly, how would you travel? You would walk, obviously. (laughs) You know, because it's so tasteful. Because it's so completing. It's such a complete reverence for space and time and your own body and the correctness of the situation. And... uh, Time and time at La Chirera, someone would be doing something some way and someone else would say, well, if you're omniscient, why don't you just make it be done? And the answer is because that's, it's crass <laughs> to do that. You know, the way to do things, if you can do anything, is to do them right. That's Zen. Eh? Like Zen cooking is like that. I guess. But that, that, uh, that realization of the total richness and correctness of the moment is that's the correct interpretation of the attainment of these cities. Uh, uh, things would go on at La Chirera, uh, as an example of how the Tao works, where I would walk out into the jungle and there would be butterflies circling and I would hold out my hand and speak to the butterflies with my mind and invite them to come down and land on my hand and display themselves. And the butterflies would do this. They would come and land in my open hand and turn and strut and show me all facets of themselves. And this would go on for like two or three minutes where I would experience gratitude, reverence, delight, and then this other emotion, the need to show somebody else <laughs> what I could do. And so then I would, uh, I would walk back to the camp and smiling with a bizarre inward smile, I would select one of my campmates and ask them to walk out into the jungle with me. And then, to their horror, I would stand underneath this tree and gesture and ask for the butterflies to come down and land in my hand. And people would just turn away 
in a mixture of horror and embarrassment that anyone could be such a jackass, first of all, and that anyone could be so mentally deranged as to operate like that. And of course, the butterflies would have nothing to do with me. And, and, and I would just be left just, just sputtering, you know? And, and it happened many times. Many times? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, many times. Because there was I mean, this that you took people and were left sputtering? Or left? Oh, oh, like, for, it was not only the butterflies. It was that as long as I did have, as long as I had no ego, I could work magic. But it was not, it was magic that was the necessary magic. It absolutely had no use other than to make my life a more perfect work of art. As an example, we had a pot in which we cooked a vena, oatmeal, every morning. It was our magic pot. And the scrubbing out of this pot was a major pain in the neck and was consequently a rotating camp duty. So in the height of this, it became my turn to scrub this pot. And I went down to the little spring where the sand was and squatted down by the water and I picked up the sand and I rubbed it onto the pot to get ready to scrub it. And then I looked and the, the black stuff was just flaking off. It was like easy off or something. <laughs> And it was just, and I just took the pot, holding it by its two little protrusions, and immersed it in the spring like this, and looked, and all the black stuff was just flaking off and crudding off and going. And I was just amazed, you know, the magical scouring agent. So then I went back to the camp and got my most severe critic. And again, smiling with inward benignness, I led them down to the river and, uh, and said, I'm going to teach you how to wash a pot, the Zen master, you see. So we squat across from each other by the spring, and I, and I pick up the sand, and I put it on, and, and she says, so I'm supposed to know that sand can wash a pot? I say, no, look. And again it failed me, you know. And I just was, uh, then, by then I was getting the message. And I, I stopped. Uh, and there was one other instance which was very puzzling because I actually saw another person go into it too. And it had to do with this prophecy which my brother had made. He, one of the motifs which circled in his mind space during this period was what he called the good shit. And this was, he claimed, imagined that at some time in the past he had gotten a sample of Afghani hash that had had cow manure very, very carefully worked into it, and then the hash had been infected with the uh, psilocybin mycelium, and all of the cow manure had been converted into psilocybin, so that he had the psilocybinated hash. And he had this notion that he would invent a musical instrument, like an electric guitar, which when you played it, it would cause this stuff to condense out of the air and rain down on great crowds of people. <clears throat> so anyway, there was this thing about the good shit. And, and one night he announced that uh, 
that the good shit would appear at a certain time. And so then I went back to my hammock in this hut in the jungle and uh, and the woman who was with me came as well and we had no watches but he had said that 11 that at 11 p.m. the good shit would appear so I was settling down to roll my uh, evening joint and it was this Colombian weed that we had brought in with us and uh, as I lit the joint this little thing fell out of the end of it on the floor, burning. And I picked it up, and I smelled it, and it was unbelievable hashish. I mean, hashish to die for. And I was just, you know, and I put it in the pipe, and I, and I smoked it. And I said to this woman, I said, smoke this. And she agreed that it oh, was no. astonishing. Your major critic. No, not my major <laughs> critic. My major critic was back at the river. So then I looked and I, and I opened this baggie with this stuff and I started smoking it. And it, did not, it didn't change its physical appearance. It still looked like this Santa Marta gold. But the odor and everything was just the most, the finest hash I've ever smoked. So I thought that the millennium had come. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Since we're uh, already at the one hour mark, I decided to let Terence in for today with his uh, good shit story. And uh, <laughs> if you've got a good memory, you may remember that once before I podcast Terence uh, telling that story, a little over a decade after the version he just now told. And uh, if you want to hear it again, it's in my podcast number 28 that I posted in February of 2006. And if I remember correctly, he goes on to tell the rest of the story, which... I'm sure you've already guessed, uh, and that is by morning, the good shit had vanished once again. Now, this may only be my impression, but even thinking back to uh, the view I held of the world back in the mid-1980s, it seems that uh, back then many of us were much more concerned and interested and fascinated with uh, some unknown 2012 event than we uh, are today, <laughs> even though it's much closer. Uh, I still find it fascinating, but personally I don't have any expectation that things are going to be uh, significantly different on New Year's Day in 2013. You know, back in the uh, 80s I felt differently. Uh, however, right now I'm much more hopeful about a happy ending someday than I was uh, when I was expecting a miracle in 2012. Now uh, I can see how literally millions and millions of us uh, connecting largely through the Internet are exchanging ideas and thoughts about better ways to live more lightly on this little planet. And uh, at least for me, the fact that even though it may take several more generations to complete the transformation... I do think that a fundamental shift in human consciousness has begun. Uh, even on my bad days, I still think this. Uh, I guess uh, optimism is the uh, best drug I've found yet. Now, I suspect that it also hit you when, after about 15 minutes into this talk, that uh, Terence was wondering out loud what it would feel like to die before the task was finished. Uh, essentially, uh, before 2012, in his worldview, I would guess. But it uh, was a little haunting to hear him ask uh, the how did it feel to die before whatever it is was finished. 
to ask that question about some others who had died without considering the fact that uh, he too might die before 2012. In my view, uh, it will never be finished. Transformation, or change if you prefer, is a constant in this world that we all share. So, if I were you, I wouldn't get uh, too hung up on some big change taking place before you die, unless that big change is the uh, change you bring about in your own life, a change in you. Now, uh, that actually is something that you have control over. You know, as uh, William James once said, you can actually change your life by simply changing your attitude. But uh, I've learned that what old William didn't mention is that uh, changing your attitude can uh, sometimes be (laughs) pretty darn hard. You know, it's uh, so easy to get caught in these mind loops that won't seem to let go, but uh, fortunately I was introduced to our psychedelic medicines a long time ago, and now I have a sure way to break those endless subroutines of negativity when they take hold, And uh, that's why I'd like to uh, see the war on people who use non-prescription drugs come to an end so that uh, everybody can have the opportunity to heal themselves with plant medicines that have shared this planet with us since we first began walking upright. Now, I I do have to admit that, uh, since I don't want to get too heavy here, uh, that after listening to hundreds of hours of uh, metaphysical theorizing by Terence and the other bright lights we've heard here in the salon... Well, I have to admit that I'm still no closer to an intelligent, cohesive understanding of life and death than I was in the beginning, I guess. Maybe it's just because uh, I'm getting ever closer to my own expiration date that, uh, well, these things just don't seem as important to me as they did ten years ago. At this stage of my life, uh, I find that it's still fun to listen to all of these speculations about what is really going on, but... I no longer spend much of my time uh, chewing on them once I turn off my MP3 player. I guess that uh, one of the reasons is that life and death ultimately remain a mystery until we experience them. And right now I'm experiencing life. And uh, so I feel it's kind of a waste of my time to be wondering too much about what happens after my body dies. For one thing, uh, I have no control over what happens in regards to whether there is or isn't awareness after physical death, so uh, why should I be concerned about it? As far as I remember, uh, I didn't have any say in being born, but it happened, and all things considered, I've had a wonderful life, tragedies and all. Maybe there's nothing at all after death, and uh, maybe we begin an even more incredible experience. Uh, Maybe we come back here for another round. The simple fact is that I just don't know, and since I'm going to find out soon enough, well, right now, while I'm still experiencing a human life, I'm going to focus as much as I can on doing things that most likely won't be options after I die. And what may these things be, you may ask? Well, for whatever reason, I truly enjoy watching American football. And since it's football season right now, uh, here in the States, I find myself choosing to watch football rather than... uh, do research on my next book, for example. A waste of time, I once thought that was, but uh, it brings me more joy right now than reading, and so I watch football. Even more fun is to play with my grandchildren who live nearby. You know, time just uh, simply stops for me then. In fact, uh, in truth, (laughs) it really does crawl really slowly when I'm watching another rerun of Dora the Explorer with my youngest one. I'll uh, probably go to my grave with that damn theme song in my mind. 
But what I'm trying to say here is that uh, while all of this uh, heady intellectual stuff is fun to play around with, it's not nearly uh, as much fun for me as are some of the physical pursuits that we can only do while we're in human bodies. And uh, I suspect you can probably come up with your own list of uh, favorite physical pursuits that uh, may not include watching football and playing with children. So, uh, hey, get out there and dance as much as you can. You know, dance the dance of life on Earth as a human being. Well, uh, that's more than enough of uh, my preaching for today, and uh, I hope that you don't take what I say uh, too personally. You know, these little side notes that uh, spill out like this for me from time to time are primarily meant for me to uh, remind myself of some of the conclusions I've come to and conclusions that I may abandon one day. Who knows? But I do hope that uh, you never forget that you should be the one that comes to your own conclusions about life, death, and uh, the sometimes joyful experience of being human. We're all one, after all, uh, but we're also all different, because uh, even identical twins have to walk on different parts of the path. That's what uh, makes this life and these times so interesting. You uh, may not believe me right now if you're in a tough spot, but uh, should you ever find yourself in an eternal state of bliss... Just remember that I warned you that bliss can become really boring. <laughs> and for sure, these are not boring times. And in uh, just about an hour, uh, I'm going to keep myself from being bored by going down to my local polling place and casting my vote in favor of legalizing cannabis in the state of California. And casting that vote is going to make me feel extremely good, no matter what the ultimate outcome. And uh, so that'll do it for today, and I'll close today's podcast once again by reminding you that uh, this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharelike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find uh, through psychedelicsalon.org. And if you're interested in the uh, philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.